listening to The Coffee Podcast, where our focus is people and our language is coffee. My name is Weston Peterson. And I'm Jesse Hartman. This is your platform for people-focused coffee talk. What is specialty coffee? This is a question that has haunted our minds and our podcast episodes <laughs> and our podcast episodes since the beginning even pretty much yeah we've had episodes where Wes and I are you know we we used to use one mic reason two mics I don't need to get into why yeah don't <laughs> the point is we used to like almost even come at each other you know at least in our eyebrows like you know being all we were head down head to head literally yeah many times over this question what is specialty coffee yeah. And we spend a lot of time wondering. We've spent a lot of time even reposting the question on Instagram to see what other people out there are thinking about that question. It's an important question. And needless to say, I don't think we, we need to ponder anymore, Wes. Well, quit your worrying, Jesse, because today we have the executive director of the Specialty Coffee Association, Rick Reinhardt, on the show to answer just that. The big question. What is specialty coffee? Hi, uh, my name is Rick Reinhardt. I'm the executive director for the Specialty Coffee Association. Uh, I've been uh, in that role for 10 years this year uh, and have been a member and volunteer and a director and a whole range of other roles inside the Specialty Coffee Association for about 25 years now. Wow. So how long has the Specialty Coffee Association been around? Uh, the Specialty Coffee Association was founded in 1982 uh, and uh, became self-managed in uh, 1990. Um, and so it's been running itself, you know, the, the board of directors uh, um, in conjunction with an executive director and staff since 1990. Prior to that, there was a, a uh, association management company, which is very typical for small associations. Yeah, thanks, Rick. So it, it's pretty obvious you have a lot of experience just based on what you just told us, but I kind of want to go back to your beginnings in coffee. Uh, what was your first experience with with coffee? Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny. I'm going to go all the way back. So uh, Perfect. This is fun. I, uh, I'm a child of the 60s, or uh, I grew up certainly in the 60s, let's put it that way. Um, and my earliest memories of coffee are around the house as a kid and really loving the aroma of coffee. And my father drank it with uh, drank coffee regular with milk and, sh- and sugar. And I don't remember loving his coffee with milk and sugar, but I always loved the flavor of it. And sometime in about 1964, 1965, Carnation came out with instant breakfast when we were all going to live longer and better through science and uh, instant breakfast was a uh, a powdered mix that probably based in uh, in non-fat dry milk and then had some added uh, proteins and a few other things in it and lots of sugars uh, and the came in a variety of flavors and uh, it was a breakfast replacement for that busy working mom who didn't have time to make the traditional bacon and eggs for her kids. And so my mother, uh, who was a modern woman of the 60s, uh, started giving my brother and I instant breakfast. And my brother was a big fan of the chocolate and chocolate malt, but I always loved the coffee. So you can imagine this drink that smelled <laughs> of coffee and had a coffee flavor, but was intensely sweetened and fattened um, 
in, in a milk base and probably not that far off from the entry point for lots of kids who come to coffee today. Yeah, that's actually not too far removed from, I mean, well, it, with, with the exception of the kind of coffee. I was attracted to the aroma as well, I think was one of the first things I noticed as a younger fellow. Man, I, I feel like I need to get in on that instant breakfast thing, man. <laughs> that sounds awesome. It's, it saves some time, no yeah. doubt. Yeah. Well, you know, better better living through science. That was the eat the way the astronauts. Yeah. Used. Cool. So when did you find yourself, uh, you know, actually getting involved in uh, the coffee industry? Yeah, I came to the industry uh, as uh, as so many people do. Um, it's, it's my belief that up until very recently, there was only two ways to get into coffee. One is that you were born into a family that was in coffee, so either a, a coffee roasting company or on the other side, a coffee farming family, and very occasionally maybe in coffee trading somewhere. So either you were born there or you accidentally fell into coffee from the most uh, sort of inane or nonsensical possible way. And I fall into the second category there. I was actually uh, working for Four Seasons Hotels uh, back in the late, uh, well, actually, I guess in the mid-80s. And I was looking for um, for coffee for my hotel. And I found a local coffee roaster in Los Angeles, got very intrigued with their coffee and started to bring their coffee with me as I made my journey from hotel to hotel with Four Seasons. And the owner of that company, uh, somewhere along the line, said, hey, if you're ever tired of the hotel business, give me a call. I've got a place for you in the coffee business. And uh, sometime in the late 80s, I was pretty tired of the hotel business, which is a 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year gig. I called him up and said, I'm tired of the hotel business, and truly, <laughs> got a place for me in the coffee business. And off I went. Very nice, very nice. And, and you didn't just start, I mean, as the director of, of the SCA um, what, what was kind of the transitionary thing going on there for you? Uh, I know you have some background, uh, at groundwork coffee company. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and just how that played a role? Sure. I, uh, I, uh, got into coffee from the hotel business was there, uh, in a variety of roles for, uh, about 12, 10, 10 or 12 years. And then, uh, was, doing some consulting work uh, and took on the antecedent of groundwork, uh, a place called Gourmet Coffee Warehouse as a consulting client. And at some point, uh, worked with the principal there and uh, you know saw there was some real opportunity to grow and expand that business. It was a single store uh, in Southern California at that time and uh, made a deal to, to uh, go to work there on a part-time basis, which later expanded to a full-time basis. And eventually... Um, Became the president of that company and uh, spent about, uh, I guess, about five years there, uh, growing it from that sort of single store with a little bit of wholesale business into, uh, by the time I left, six stores and uh, a few million dollars in wholesale business. Wow, yeah. Uh, it's quite quite the growth there. And that was at that Groundwork Coffee Company, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we were based in uh, in Venice, California, and then uh, expanded our roastery out into Los Angeles. And we, Los Angeles was kind of a bit of a coffee desert, uh, you know, at the beginning of the new millennium here. There was no clear hometown favorite. So we really saw an opportunity to become the sort of uh, leading edge specialty guys and uh, and pioneered a lot of stuff in Los Angeles uh, back in the days when there was no intelligentsia here and no stump town here. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say LA, LA is not that way anymore. Not at all is it that way. 
No, no, it's just the, the landscape uh, for coffee's changed dramatically, and then just the landscape at LA generally has changed pretty dramatically. Yeah. So, Rick, how did you um, pioneer sort of the coffee industry in in LA? What? Uh, I'd be loath to say I pioneered the coffee industry. I would be <laughs> proud, proud to say that yeah. you know we introduced a lot of uh, sort of new concepts to to the LA area. Um, you know, one of those which will seem odd uh, with the perspective of of hindsight from 2017, but we put the first clover uh, into a coffee house in LA in oh, wow, 2006, yeah. which at the time was you know you you have to imagine that there really was no sort of single cup brewing for uh for drip style coffee uh on the scene and coffee at that time and it meant that single origin coffees just didn't get the sort of presentation that they really deserved uh in the in the specialty coffee world and the the clover was the machine that made that possible so for us it was a huge boon in in uh, presenting unique single origin uh direct trade coffees uh, to the public Wow, and I am curious, uh, Rick. What what would you say was maybe one of your greatest passions while you were there, uh, while you're doing things like the that first single cup brewer? Um, how would you define yourself as a person in coffee? Like your greatest passions driving you, sort of thing. Well, I, I certainly was uh, was very focused on trying to build a, a sustainable value chain and uh, make sure that we were contributors to a more equitable distribution uh, to the producer and uh, and with an eye towards both ends of the value chain. So we worked hard to, to um, be fair and transparent with producers. And on the other end, the last thing that I did before I left there that I presented uh, in a conference was uh, a look at uh, a living wage scheme for baristas in the LA area. Yeah, that that would be a nice conversation. That's still yeah, a, that's, it was a lot of fun, actually, and it's doable. I might add. Yeah, I I mean I don't think we can go down that route, but that's a that's a whole other topic. I would love to to eventually have on the show. But um, I have to ask you, uh, what are your experiences with uh, specialty coffee or third wave coffee? What do these words uh, bring to your mind? What are your personal experiences i heard you use the word specialty coffee and i know uh, you're a part of the specialty uh, coffee association so what do those words mean to you and we'll we'll get into the deeper meaning later but i just want to kind of like a top level sort of thing sure you know it's interesting because that uh, those words sort of uh, are the bookends for my career in coffee at least my career to date so i would say that i came into coffee as a specialty coffee guy where we were focused on uh, the quality of the coffee, both uh, as a raw material, uh, as a roasted uh, whole bean product, and ultimately as a beverage. So we were looking for those things that made a special experience for the consumer at every stage of the of the coffee value chain. And that specialty term is uh, you know dates back to to the early 70s when Erna Knudsen coined it. And so I very much looked at myself as a specialty coffee person. I will say that um, um, because I've been hanging around for so long now, I also um, got to participate, I guess, as a third wave coffee guy. I used to tell folks I was either the uh, oldest young guy or the youngest old guy, although um, <laughs> folks have told me since then I'm just an old guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's not fair. So, yeah, that's awesome, man. Rick, when did you – so you, you planted a clover 
um, down there in Los Angeles. And you said before then there really wasn't much um, like single cup brewing going on. Is that about the time where single origin coffee and sort of this third wave trend started to um, catch steam uh, in the West Coast? Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, specialty buyers and people who were paying attention and who were passionate about uh, the business were coming to grips with a whole new paradigm about how to buy coffee, how to source coffee, and then how to present the results of that sourcing activity to um, to consumers, to customers, to folks in our coffeehouse neighborhoods in a way that was going to be meaningful and impactful and drive the value for the, the cost of that process. So, you know, I, early in my career, uh, I was a coffee buyer who uh, spent the majority of his coffee buying time around a cupping table in his lab, in his roastery, cupping the samples that were sent to me by brokers and dealers uh, from all over the country. After the 2000 sort of two three period when we were deep in the coffee crisis, um, I started traveling to Origin to buy coffee uh, and you know got to work around and with and uh, sometimes competing with uh, with the sort of new generation of coffee buyers who were pioneering direct trade. So at that end of the spectrum, I got uh, super engaged in trying to understand how to buy great coffee and then present it in a way that had an impact on the customer. And single origin was certainly the way, the best way to um, sort of preserve that impact. And just to move right along into uh, sort of the events right before you jumped on to uh, the Specialty Coffee Association, when you jumped on, it was uh, the Specialty Coffee Association of America, correct? Yes. Okay. And, wh- and what was that uh, experience like? What uh, were the events leading up to that point? Well, they're, they're a mixture of, uh, of uh, good and bad and indifferent. So on the good side, I'd been a, uh, a board member at Specialty Coffee Association for a few years at that point uh, and uh, had been elected from my board position into being the second vice president, which is the cycle that leads to the presidency uh, in the Specialty Coffee Association of America or that led to the presidency. Gotcha. And so I was just beginning that term uh, as vice president. At the same time, uh, we uh, we uh, lost our uh, existing executive director um, because of some uh, issues uh, with interfacing with staff, etc. And then simultaneously, I had a relatively bitter business divorce from my partner, Groundwork. So the confluence of all that was that the Specialty Coffee Association Board of Directors uh, asked me to step into the role of executive director on an interim basis, which I did in... Uh, in uh, August of 2007, and then uh, about nine months later, they asked me to stay on uh, permanently, or uh, I don't know if permanently is a sense of ominous, but <laughs> sure. they asked me to stay on as the executive director uh, thereafter, and yeah. so I've uh, been there ever since. Yeah, I caught your flow there for sure. I, I didn't think you meant permanent, but that's that's a good sign when you when you're supposed to be temporary somewhere, and then the people who put you there are like, hey, do you want to like stick around and keep doing what you're doing? <laughs> that's normally a very good thing. Yeah, I, I found somebody with the with either enough stamina and tolerance, or uh, <laughs> or enough disregard for uh, his own health to keep doing it. Well, there you go. Good, good to know. So, uh, and so, sorry, I know we're kind of jumping through. I I want you to be able to tell your story and also get to the big question. Um, but before the big question, uh, simple little questions, or maybe not so simple. Um, one being. Uh, 
what what kind of caused the the merge of the SCAA uh, to the SCA and and uh, I mean was it was it kind of like always planned or was it sort of a surprise? What you know, I'm I'm really I have no idea what led to that merge. <laughs> it, it makes sense, obviously. Yeah, I mean, there are any number of events that that led up to it. Um, maybe the first thing that would make sense to would be to sort of ask the why question: Why was it a good idea? And and what about the events that led up to it sort of reinforced that? And and the why is really quite straightforward in my mind. Specialty coffee is a niche within the larger coffee market, and it's uh, in many places it's the most important niche certainly in the u.s it's the niche that's driven consumption increases and participation in the market on u.s side but it's got a place all over the world and trade associations traditionally uh have as a, as one of the main pillars of their activity the focus on creating a uh, a legislative or regulatory or business environment that's um, enabling for their industry and that certainly happens in the U.S. The National Coffee Association of the U.S. has got a high level of focus on exactly that, looking at the regulatory and legislative environment and the general business environment for coffee. And it's true for the uh, German Coffee Association and the Spanish Coffee Association and the British Coffee Association that they're focused on that environment, regulatory issues, legislative issues. Specialty really transcends those um, sort of geopolitical borders because it's a niche within the coffee market. And so whatever the the regulatory environment is for coffee, that's going to be the same environment for specialty. So we have had the luxury since the beginning of not having to focus our energy and attention and resources on that um, legislative or regulatory environment, but instead have been able to focus on the quality of coffee and what that means in delivering an expanding marketplace and expanded offering and expanded business opportunities to the people who want to participate there, whether they be um, roasters or cafe operators or baristas or uh, green traders or ultimately consumers in that marketplace. So, with that thought in mind, we looked towards the, what was going on in Europe with the Specialty Coffee Association of Europe, and we realized that we had a lot in common. We were pursuing a lot of the same activities, and we started to consider where we might work together uh, rather than separately. And the first outcome of that decision to work together was the World Barista Championship, which ultimately became World Coffee Events which was a co-owned uh, activity of Specialty Coffee Association of America and Speciality Coffee Association of Europe. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. So we uh, cool. we have been producing the World Barista Championship and World Cup Tasters and uh, World Latte Art and uh, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. um, since 2011 together. And uh, the World Barista Championship back farther than that since the very first uh, uh uh, uh, iteration of that. Wow! And we found that we were able to work together. We had a lot of common purpose, uh, and uh, that uh, we were far better working together than competing. Uh, so we started to consider, um, with some serious intent, the possibility of joining forces um, in about two thousand, late two thousand fourteen, early two thousand fifteen. So, in around that time period, how long did it take before? the the merge was finalized i know there was like a voting process going on um and i think members of the scaa uh, were actually able to go on and vote uh for the merge or against the merge and obviously it went through um successfully 
so I think that was just about in 2016 when it when that merge was finalized, correct? Yeah, so the voting, the referendum uh, went through on the European side in May of 16 and on the U.S. side in July of 16. And uh, members from both sides had the opportunity to vote uh, up or down on, on moving forward with it. And I'm happy to say both sides uh, voted for it on an overwhelming basis. And so uh, we moved forward from there. Um, these things, you know, it takes some time to work up to the to the decision to move forward, then there's the process of going through this referendum, et cetera, and then there's the hard work of integrating and, and doing the sort of legal standpoint of it and integrating the staffs and integrating the activities, et cetera. So um, that business is still ongoing, but we're working as a single staff with a single board of directors, and we've got a few uh, odds and ends to finish off um, to actually complete the totality of the merger, but we're effectively um, through the process today. So you see us, uh, we're a combined staff uh, of about 85 people um, in Europe and the U.S. Uh, we also have some staff in uh, in Asia, and uh, cool. we have folks working virtually and out of uh, brick-and-mortar buildings and everything in between. Very cool. So, Rick, would you mind shedding a little bit of light on some of the greatest challenges you faced uh, during the merge and uh, and how you've been able to alleviate some of those challenges? Sure. I mean, the, I think the, the biggest challenges have been uh, sort of cultural ones. Uh, I, each, each company had its own sort of uh, corporate culture, uh, as well as the sort of uh, geographic cultural differences, um, different working styles in the U.S. than, than in Europe. Uh, and the two companies um, had sort of uh, had different approaches. Uh, I would say that on the U.S. side, the SCAA and was a pretty flat organization with uh, you know decision making being uh, flattened down as much as we could so that everybody was sort of empowered to to make decisions and move forward and i think uh, the scae was a little more classically hierarchical um, so certainly some differences there uh, that we have had to sort of sort through uh, but i think everybody's uh, pretty well underway with that and then there's just the mechanical challenges of, you know, we operate uh, today across about uh, about 20 time zones. So it's, a, it, it's hard work. Uh, I spend about half my time uh, in the UK and about half my time in California. Uh, and uh, it's not so bad when I'm in California. Um, <laughs> I start early in the day and then I, you know, I'm, I'm done relatively early uh when i'm in the uk it's a little more challenging we start a little bit later and i find myself working later and later into the evening so we can catch up with the west coast of the u.s yeah i i see what you're saying now what you were saying before about it being your position kind of <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> oh good grief man you know what you put me in my place i feel like i need to go on a few walks now and and, and reanalyze my life yeah i i have to say i appreciate the hard work you put into that that's uh yeah, absolutely yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we brought you on uh, to the show for a lot of reasons. Uh, there is a big reason, though. Um, our, our listeners are um, as inquisitive as we are, and this has been an ongoing conversation. I think it's, it's only appropriate. We're this close to the expo here in a few weeks. Um, it's a big question. And the big question is, what is specialty coffee? Um, I'm just going to leave it that simple because... It's not just in our circles. I've heard it uh, in other circles um, where it gets very confusing, and I just want to know what your take is on that question. 
what is the meaning of life? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a simple question on its face, and it's a tough one to answer. And so I'm going to be a little bit evasive, and then hopefully I'm going to provide a little bit of inspiration. So okay. on the evasive side, I would just say that we've defined it um, a couple different ways. So the Specialty Coffee Association of America, for a long time, defined coffee from the raw material standpoint. So we defined specialty coffee um, as coffee. Uh, coffee that was, uh, and this is a bit of shorthand, coffee that was free of defects um, and presented uh, unique flavors uh, connected to its origin. So it gave us a way to look at the grading of of green coffee. So we looked at the aspect, the physical aspect of coffee and the sensory aspects of green coffee uh, and made certain that those coffees um, scored in a particular empirical range uh, in their in their uh, cupping qualities, their flavor qualities, and that they were free of the primary defects that uh, we identified for the physical aspect grading of coffee. And that's one approach to specialty coffee, saying, hey, you can't make a specialty coffee unless you start with the specialty coffee. So uh, in right order on. to qualify, especially the, the raw material has to qualify. The Specialty Coffee Association of Europe, uh, on the other hand, looked at uh, a, a different approach. They looked at the um, point of consumption. So the beverage, uh, presuming that all specialty coffee ultimately ends up as a beverage, that the beverage that was in the hands of the consumer at that moment and that time had uh, had a, a quality differential that made it rise above the ordinary. And that's another valid perspective. In the years in between those two definitions being launched, uh, I certainly have come to have an appreciation for a look uh, at specialty coffee from a more uh, producer-driven perspective that suggests that coffee is only a specialty coffee if it meets the the definition of being defect-free and well-connected uh, in its attributes to its place of origin and that it results in a, a great uh, beverage experience for the consumer. And equally as importantly, that it provides uh, a measure of, uh, of quality in livelihood, in stewardship for the land, and in care for the process um, that reflects the role of the producer. So when we sort of tie all three of those together, we get uh, to a definition for specialty coffee that we can verbalize, um, but that is very uh, difficult to empiricize, that is to give it a, a clear cut set of uh, sort of pass-fail parameters that you could analyze empirically. Um, and so one of our tasks today is to tie that all together in a way that gives us enough of an empirical standpoint that people can, who feel compelled to satisfy things empirically, can do so, um, but that also captures the spirit of what specialty coffee is, that it's the coffee that rewards everybody in the value chain, from the producer through to the consumer with a more positive experience around coffee. Thank you so much. That was um, that was the most beautiful definition <laughs> of specialty coffee I have ever heard. So, uh, Rick, you might you might appreciate this. Uh, Wes and I. How many episodes ago is this? Was like, dude, we've been fighting about this since the start. I yeah, like. <laughs> I think so. You know, Wes and I, we we kind of developed our own uh, experiences. Kind, of, you, you would understand this because you were on the quality side. You were cupping all the time. Um, you know, and, and Wes was too, he was doing all that quality control, uh, you know, body and soul and all that. And so, uh, and I was on the cafe side. And so we were having these kind of debates even on the show where it was, we almost 
fighting about you know hey quality uh, versus experience i yeah, think is yeah what and, and yeah. so yeah we kind of pin them against each other but then i think in the end we agreed like yeah it's got to be both uh and not only does it have to be both now but you mentioned even the third uh sort of that third um piece there um which was the almost i don't want to put the word sustainability on it uh, or traceability but that's kind of what you were getting at do you think rick or, or no as far as the that third piece yeah. Yeah, I think sustainability is a reasonable uh, name to assign to this sense okay. that, you know, we can't uh, we can't build a qualitatively better experience uh, on the backs of the land or the people that uh, produce our raw material. It's got to be uh, a shared experience. So I think it's important for us to keep these concepts in mind about uh, stewardship of land and uh, equitability of uh, distribution in the value chain. Those are those are part and parcel of this. I think that sometimes we lose sight of that because we, if you're at the consumer end, if you're on the on the coffee house end of it, you're very focused on the gustatory experience uh, that a customer has when they're standing in front of you with this unique coffee in their hands. And that's great and that's important and that's part of what drives our whole business is that realization by the consumer that this is a more valuable product. Sure. But yeah. it's 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 not alone it's not enough by itself i mean you have the possibility to do that through marketing and deception um it's not a sustainable activity uh if if you really want to do it you've got to create a real experience for the consumer that's repeatable and demonstrable and i i have to also say um the you know i'm i'm a poet at heart uh, maybe and uh there's that sort of beautiful picture of the sca and then uh, S. Oh man, I'm gonna mess up the letters, but you know the Europe side is specialty coffee, and um, coming together and those two ideas coming together. The the idea that hey, it's you know it's a quality of coffee, and oh hey, it's like the in game experience too. Coming together in this merger is is a big deal, I think, um, for the uh, SCA. Wouldn't you Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely, and I'd also point to the you know the third leg of that. The door is open there as well. So, we are um, by design uh, open to uh, to being collaborative uh, and uh, and completely transparent and willing to to work with and anxious to work with uh, folks at the producer side of things as well. Absolutely, man, Rick, this has got me fired up. <laughs> Uh, about the future of coffee and i just i just want to ask rick as you know an as a professional as a very experienced professional in the coffee industry where do you see coffee going in the next five years you know it's uh i I, it's a a moment of uh of uh deep concern for me at the at this exact point in time uh Coffee is, as a general sense, not just specialty coffee, but the whole world of coffee, has been moving along at a very nice clip. So, you know, we are, last year we consumed about 150 million bags of coffee around the world. And coincidentally, we produced about 150 million bags of coffee, um, which is a lot of coffee. And that's up from uh, 100 million bags of coffee just 25 years ago or so. So we've really increased production and consumption quite substantially. Some of that's been uh, on, on led by specialty coffee, particularly in the mature markets in the U.S., Japan, and, and in the, in Europe. And some of it's been led by an expansion to completely new markets. A lot of traditional producer markets have started to consume their own product, which is great. We've seen emerging markets in Asia and Eastern Europe. Um, uh, 
in places like Australia, which was you know fundamentally a tea drinking country, and then made a wholesale switch into specialty coffee. So we've seen a lot of growth and a lot of positive outcomes, and lots of wonderful stuff has happened. At the same time, uh, we're in a place where the production capacity uh, of uh, coffee origins is being challenged, uh, in part by uh, really uh, systemic issues like uh, climate change and global warming and an increased occurrence of, uh, of extreme weather events, in part by challenges for land use as we've got more and more people on the planet struggling to get fed and there's been more and more pressure on land to be used for um, food production, for basic uh, staple good production, and frankly, uh, land's being pressured to be used for um, vacation homes and condominiums and lots of other things. So those things are putting real pressure on the supply of coffee. It's compounded by you know some opportunistic pathogens, um, uncertainty in terms of uh, water resources, and then undoubtedly a lot of social pressure um, that's resulting in uh, in real um, challenges for labor. Coffee is you know a high labor intensity product, and uh, it's getting harder and harder to get. Uh, folks who want to work in that um, high-intensity labor. Um, we're seeing an aging farm population. Smallholder farmers are extremely challenged by the prevailing economics of the coffee market. So we've got lots and lots of deep-seated concerns about the future of coffee that revolve around the viability, the sustainability of our value chain economically, environmentally, and socially. Wow. Youch. Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> back, to, back to reality there. Yeah. No, I didn't want to drag you down, but this is what Woo. keeps me awake at night. You know, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I totally understand. This sustainability uh, conversation is especially one uh, that the podcast is going to be covering uh, quite a bit in the next, uh, well, this year. Um, and and we've seen we've seen a lot of this um, confusion even behind it, and we hope to be a part of educating. Uh, and I think primarily by having people uh, like you, Rick, who, who know what they're talking about on the show, uh, answering uh, questions. And, and so that was extremely valuable. Uh, and I hope our listeners uh, hear that as valuable as we do. Um, I'm going to jump on into uh, one of our most difficult questions, or maybe it's an easy question for you. Um, it's... Uh, what is this? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. It's do you have any uh, resources you'd like to recommend? And that's not a hard question, actually. <laughs> yeah, plenty of. Obviously, I'm going to recommend uh, recommend Specialty Coffee Association as a resource. Yeah. Whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, that's a little biased. <laughs> <laughs> we do try to uh, sort of uh, be a clearinghouse for information about coffee yeah. uh, and coffee issues. And more importantly, we try to provide venues that spark these conversations and help us work towards solutions. So I like to think of us as a good resource particularly through our guild activities, the Barista Guild and the Roasters Guild and our uh, Emerging Technicians Guild are all yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, cool. I'll look to that one. Information and training. Yeah, so we're excited about that. There are other great sources of, of information out there. Uh, there are coffee organizations at the producer level um, that have fantastic resources. There is one of my favorites, World Coffee Research, which is a research organization that looks at uh, on the producing side at uh, Coffee Genetics and uh, yep. and uh, Husbandry. That's fantastic. And then we've got emerging resources in places like uh, UC Davis uh, that have uh, launched coffee programs within the university setting. All of those are fantastic. Um, and there are, there are many, many more that uh, if I had an hour and a half, I could go <laughs> into. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the resources, Rick. And I just have one last doozy for you. This is a, the hard one that I meant. And it would be, what is the single best piece of advice you have ever received? I'm going to give you uh, one that came to me. I'm going to give you the attribution. It came to me from uh, one of the great people in coffee, a woman by the name of Lindsay Bolger, who you may or may not know. But Lindsay uh, is the head of coffee uh, procurement for uh, Cure Green Mountain. And she's been a specialty coffee player for uh, for uh, close to 30 years now. She's very, very bright, but she's also very, very uh, down-to-earth and uh, and gives out sage advice. And I am a married man who's been happily married for a long time. And one of the reasons is because many years ago, Lindsay gave me a great piece of advice. And she said, Rick, you have two choices. You can be right or you can be happy. And uh, I've elected to be happy. Uh, and that's been <laughs> the key to a, a, a long uh, and happy marriage for me. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand. I'm only I'm only three months in married, and and I and I can understand what that means. Um, well, thank you, Rick. Uh, you know all the all the information, all the insight you've shared with us uh, has been really helpful uh, to us. Uh, hopefully, as well as our listeners. Hopefully, this can be a resource to people uh, when they're confused about the definition of specialty coffee, when they need some inspiration in the world of coffee, when they need some reality check as well. There sure. at the end. Um, and so, uh, yeah, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for sharing your, your wisdoms, uh, with us. Yeah, Rick, it's been such a pleasure for sure. Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to get to talk to an audience about coffee. It is my favorite subject. So, uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> Very good. All right. Thank you, Rick. Have a nice one.